Good morning. I'm Aya Wimala, and today is Thursday, December 2nd. Now it's beautiful and sunny here. A little cold, but the sun and the clear skies are, uh, are lovely. Oops, sorry for that. Um, this morning I'd like to read... I was finding a, a very interesting passage in the book I've read from most recently, Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life by Robert Thurman. And I wanted to share another, just a few pages in it. Uh, he's a great scholar and teacher. And this is a book from a, this is more from the Tibetan Buddhist uh, approach, but I think it's wonderful to hear the things, to hear things in maybe different uh, words or phrases that we're used to in our tradition. But we see the, we see uh, maybe some other ways of looking at things, just the some uh, semantics of it, the words and the phrasing can be very helpful. So this is under the section that he calls realistic mindfulness. I like that. So I like uh, mindfulness needs to be realistic, right? It's, <laughs> it's the point of it. <clears throat> and this is just a couple of pages, and it is under the subtitle of the Buddhist Therapeutic Protocol. As we explore the four focuses of mindfulness, it's worth pointing out that the four noble truths are not a religious credo or prescription for conversion, but a clear-cut psychotherapeutic protocol for pragmatic psychosomatic therapy designed to lead people out of suffering to enjoy the nirvanic reality of the world. It is intended not merely to annihilate them or to cause them to resign themselves to their misery, but to bring them to bliss. Freud said his psychotherapy was designed to lead people from neurotic suffering into acceptance of regular suffering, not because he was being stingy with them, but because he had no idea that there was such a thing as fully blissful living although maybe he thought he knew about it when he was high on cocaine, writing some of his great books. Buddha was way ahead of his time in providing a path beyond suffering altogether. That's a great paragraph. A Buddhist term for education is taming, a giving of tools for taming the psychotic ego teaching the relative person that she or he is not an absolute entity apart from the world around her or him. This is a far more transformative kind of education or psychotherapy than what we are used to, one that imparts self-awareness and introduces the person to responsibility by focusing their own observation on their relational engagement in the world. It is not that therapists do not have the goodwill toward their patients to help them become realistic and even to flourish. 
It is just that the theory underlying their work makes them feel it is not possible to go further than just achieving a makeshift balance. It has to do with the theory of the unconscious or subconscious. Freud considered the subconscious unknowable by the conscious mind, which is always relegated to being just the tip of the iceberg, inevitably driven by the powerful energies underneath it. The Buddhist scientific view was more thorough, recognizing the situation of the ordinary person as dominated by the powerful subconscious, but also experimentally developing a way for the conscious mind to fully explore the unconscious drives, overcoming delusive misgiving, misknowings. Let me read that last one, that last sentence again. The Buddhist scientific view was more thorough, recognizing the situation of the ordinary person as dominated by the powerful subconscious, but also experimentally developing a way for the conscious mind to fully explore the unconscious drives, overcoming delusive misknowing. Buddha essentially defined enlightenment as becoming fully conscious, free, able to choose the optimal way of being by focusing all energies to be beneficial for oneself and others. This is not a religious matter. It is purely scientific and clinical and arose from genius psychologists, self-explorers, who became Buddhas, wisely and lucidly awake and flourishing persons who pioneered ways of helping others find their own buddhasmic awakenings. Indeed, in order to do so, these pioneer psychologists had to break away from religions, from their authority and conditioning about the nature of the human and the subjugation of the human being to the caprices of the various gods and their priestly mouthpieces. Modern psychologists today who tend to be crippled, as Freud was, by the dogma of materialism find it hard to imagine that the Buddhist scientists were so far ahead of them in experimentation, discovery of deep psychic realities, and technologies of psychic development, since modern is supposed to mean advanced, and traditional thus is supposed to be backward. So they just lump anything remarkable-seeming that was produced by these past sages under the category of, in quotes, pre-scientific meditation, end quote. And I'll read the very last of this chapter. Modern Western civilization is a hindrance to scientific success. In other words, Western chauvinism and modernistic chauvinism prevent our materialist scientists from learning anything new from the great inner scientist of India and Tibet. The belief has to change that practitioners, whether Buddhist, Hindu, Taoist, or Western mystical, just meditate, defining meditation as learning to be free from thinking, as opposed to defining it as the radical 
transformation of the most penetrating thinking by experientially discovering the total relativity of the self. The science-oriented people who do psychology and encounter Buddhism, rarely Buddhism, which is not totally their fault, it's been all too rare, still cling to this idea that they have the ultimate psychological science, which is necessarily materialist and reductionist, while the Buddhists have meditation but don't really know what they are doing scientifically. These science-oriented people simply think, oh, it's just meditation. Amazing. We must figure out how they do it. The main problem of the modern Western mind is this. We feel we are the superior people on the planet throughout history. And history is a big deal to us because it claims to prove that everyone is more backward than we are. He doesn't mince his words, does he? And we are on the frontier of reality, about to find out the quarks and the gluons and whatever new things may be discovered. We, are at, we can actually destroy the planet, and some of us are proud of it. With this belief system comes the notion that we have nothing to learn from anybody in a pre-modern scientific sense. And even though some of us decry and condemn the destructiveness of the direction we are taking, we still feel we are going to reinvent the wheel of how we are going to save ourselves. The bottom line when it comes to realistic mindfulness or remembering is that the more you learn about reality, the more you have a chance of being free of suffering. This is what the Buddha discovered, and it is not religion. Religion is not defined as coming to an understanding of reality. Actually, science is defined as that, as the attempt to understand reality at its deepest levels. There's a lot more to be said about the Buddhist psychological science. But let's now move on to the top peak of the path where it all comes together. Realistic samadhi, one-pointed super-concentration. So that's the chapter that follows. Uh, realistic mindfulness is realistic samadhi. Samadhi, we often... Um, call samadhi concentration. So this is this is a great book. It's it's uh, he, he's kind of shaking up things and I think that's wonderful. So there there are a couple of terms he uses that I think he explains earlier in the book. I won't go into those. And uh, yeah, he's sharp. He has a sharp tongue. So <laughs> you may have caught that and uh, I don't think he means any disrespect. I think he's just giving us a lot of things to think about and uh, very fascinating. So that's a taste of realistic mindfulness. And um, I think his point is very good that it's not we're not learning to help ourselves just become... Uh, just kind of have everyday suffering and not have deep psychological suffering. 
but but the Buddha taught we can we can remove suffering from our lives. So that's a that's a deeper path. So why don't we just sit with this? Uh, I hope I hope you like that reading. I thought it was uh, great writing and and rather provocative. So we'll read a, we'll go a little bit deeper into this book. I think. Uh, but let's sit with this. Sit with Buddhism as uh, very scientific and not we we. We know it's become a religion in this world. Um, and I think that's because of all of the structures. One is the structure of uh, organizations in the world. So it's uh, easier to just be a religion than it is to be something else and exist in the world. But it's good to think about this. Yeah, Eva, yes, it is provocative. Uh, it is good to think about it, that it's that it the purpose is not to be a religion. And you can think about the early arahants and the uh, disciples of the Buddha. Uh, they were, if we think about them, that they weren't trying to be uh, uh, religious leaders. They were they were looking at this they were looking at this path that their teacher had had traveled and they were traveling it themselves and it was a way to uh, go deeper and deeper into our humanness and how to and how to end suffering so good it is I think it's interesting too so let's practice now. And I think it's good to reflect on the Four Noble Truths. And uh, he also, in the next section on Right Samadhi, he talks more about the Eightfold Path. These, these basic teachings are the things that we can always come back to and find, uh, find something new to learn, but new to embrace, new to open up to. So we want to become, not just uh, the, uh, know it academically, but if you're really interested in the teachings, we need to embrace them and live those teachings. That's how we really understand uh, what they're about. So it's good to just reflect and just good to use our Use our meditation practice just to let things kind of uh, go, come, move into us, right? And move through us and bring some peace to our day. So whatever, whatever posture you're in or if you're listening and walking, walking meditation is powerful. Um, but you may be listening in the evening before you're going to bed or in the morning. But let your body, when we practice meditation, let the body be comfortable. And your body's, just the posture of your body will inform, will uh, direct your focus more. Your body knows, okay, this is, this is uh, 
this is how we sit or stand or lie down when we meditate. So it can, it helps the body wake up. That's that. Just whatever posture, whatever pose you're in, is to allow your spine to stretch up and really uh, feel everything coming into alignment as, as much as possible with your body and feel lifted up. And just that alone allows the body to think, oh, okay, this is, we're not going to be um, getting drowsy and falling asleep. We are, we are lifting up, being awake, being attentive, And we want the body to be comfortable, so we're not lifting up and getting tight and tense. Our spine can just support us comfortably. Let your arms rest in your lap. They can be palms up or palms down. I think it's good to be aware of uh, your palms being open and not clenched, because that can be a way we hold tension and we will focus on the breath be aware of the body breathing And I think it's interesting that uh, Robert Thurman uses remembering as part of realistic mindfulness. So we're remembering. When we're mindful, we're learning. When we see things and hear things, we're learning how our body reacts. We're learning if we're uh, seeing things just as realistically as we can, or if everything everything that we experience in the world, if we're reacting to it emotionally or through our uh, perceptions that may not be, may not be correct. So as we become more mindful, we're also remembering the things we're learning. We're not forgetting them. So one time we may be irritated by some noise in the background. And then we realize there's nothing about that noise that's inherently annoying, but it's what we it's what we put onto it. It's what we load it up with. I don't like noise when I'm meditating, so I get irritated at someone slamming a door or talking outside. They have no idea that they're bothering anybody's meditation. They're just voices. So when we remember those experiences, that's part of our mindfulness. Then we see we can be anywhere and we don't take the noise or the um, maybe the scenery that we don't enjoy. We don't take any of that personally. If it's too cold or too hot, we're not taking that personally because we're remembering, we're remembering every it's all added up together 
so we can have awareness of everything around us everything making contact with us everything we smell we taste we hear And if your eyes are closed, we're just cutting off some of that visual distraction. So when we're doing walking meditation, we're, we've got that added in. So that can be a fuller experience for all of our brain work. And our mind is also one of our senses. So the thoughts that are being generated will partially come from the environment, partially comes from just the stuff that's always up in our mind, always up in our brain. We can be aware of what arises. We're just being aware. We're aware of the rising and falling nature of all this. And with our thoughts, we can also see the repetitiveness of our thoughts. So come back to your breath anytime you feel you're getting distracted or going down a rabbit hole. First, we want to be able to calm the mind. whatever enters through a sense door, we want to be able just to see it as it is, not as how we want to define it or how we want to hone in on some small aspect of it. We want our awareness just to be of the essence of what we're experiencing.
With each exhale, you can let your shoulders drop. Go back to a more relaxed body. very important that we stay in our body, not just up in our head, but in our physical body. Just keep letting go and letting be. It's very good to feel your body breathing and feel it, if you can, in your belly. You want to really be learning. We've been learning, I think, since the beginning of the pandemic together, how to just let our bodies breathe more deeply in an, in, as our natural breath. I think this helps us have more of a sense of our physical body. So 
even pulling your shoulders just a tiny bit back can help give you in sitting up, feeling your spine lifting up, and just give you a, that bigger area for your lungs to expand. We're not forcing anything, we're just allowing the breath to be naturally deeper. Now, our time together is up. It would be wonderful just to sit with you all morning long. But if you can keep sitting, even for a few more minutes, that's wonderful. Just increase that calm time. May everything that we do or say or think today be done not only for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of all living beings. We're all teachers of kindness and non-harm and loving kindness. So may everyone be well and happy and peaceful and have a beautiful day. 
And as much as you can, just keep breathing. Maybe take a few minutes out during the day if you have time just to sit and breathe and just be realistically mindful. <laughs> so thanks so much for being part of my practice.